Welcome, friends, to the True Myth Media Podcast, a conversational cinema community. I'm your host, Michael McDonald, and I can't say enough thank yous to the people who called in for uh, you know sharing what they've been watching, uh, their little rundowns, uh, recommendations of movies that they think that I should check out while we're all uh, in quarantine. Uh, I think this is going to be a really fun show for people to listen to just because of the number of voices that are on it. I'm very excited for um, what could be coming next week and the week after as we start getting into discussions with each other and things like that. So uh, if you want to leave a message next week and be included in the conversation, be sure to call 616-287-0275 or you can email me your audio, michael at truemythmedia.com and I'll make sure to include it. Well, let's get right into the guest calls. Uh, first off, we have Chris Yisley, who I went to film school with. Uh, we've always had a good rapport. I found him to be just a, a a wonderful conversational partner for movies, craft, and personal growth. So uh, take it away, Chris. Hi there. This is Chris Yisley. I'm one of the contributors or article writers for True Myth Media, and uh, I'm excited to do this, Michael. I think this is a great idea. I uh, had a couple films I've been thinking about as I was scrubbing through and thinking about your questions that I've been watching recently, and one that I think you would like that I have not been watching recently but realize you may not have seen, and I derive a great deal of pleasure of. So uh, while we've been in quarantine, quote-unquote, a couple of the films I have watched, the first one is uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. I have been delaying on watching that for quite some time. Uh, and we watched it pretty early on in the quarantine. I've seen all the Mission Impossible movies except Rogue One, and I thought they did a really good job. So if you haven't seen it, I'd recommend giving it a watch. It was circulating among a lot of uh, stuntmen and VFX artists and circles that I hang out in, and I really felt excited to see it. And I was it's been fun to watch the Mission Impossible films kind of in the meta-narrative of what they are and see the journey that they've taken in trying refining what refining what a Mission Impossible movie is. And I thought that was pretty cool to see that kind of culminate in Mission Impossible Fallout. Another movie that I watched really interestingly recently was Sahara. Now, I had seen Sahara probably over a decade ago when I was in college. And my opinions on film and my professional opinion as a film editor wasn't super well-formed yet. Um, and I just remember thinking it was bad and kind of silly. But then I started scratching my head because I started um, having some friends around me say they really loved Sahara uh, and that they liked it. And it was such a quotable film. And I was really curious about this because they all seemed to love it. Uh, but I remember just thinking it was ridiculous and dismissing it over a decade ago. So um, my wife grabbed it and we watched, rewatched the movie to see if I could form a new opinion and try and understand it. Uh, and see if maybe I had missed something from a decade ago. So I watched it, and it was <laughs> slightly worse than I remember it. Um, but it, it was interestingly good to like go through and form an articulate opinion of why that movie was not as engaging with me as maybe I was expecting it to be or why I had disliked it the first time. And I thought that it was a movie that was trying to do go down two different paths, two different genres, and it never really could decide when it wanted to, what it wanted to be. And you see this in almost every scene in the movie uh, where they'll have something that is super serious and action-packed or the banter between the characters is very witty. And you're trying to – you start to form a connection, or I did. I started to go down the track of, okay, they want this to be a serious film. And then 
and they play that action very well or start to go down that path of playing very well, and then they do a 180 and do something completely ridiculous in the same scene. So it wasn't necessarily that Sahara was doing both comedy and action very well. It was that it couldn't decide which it wanted to do and waffled between them. Uh, and that's how I, that's the general feel of the movie. It wasn't a horrible movie, but I feel like that is what I can finally articulate is what I didn't like about it a decade earlier. It just didn't know what it wanted to be. Uh, so that those are two movies I've been watching in quarantine. Mission Impossible Fallout, which I love, gave it five stars. And Sahara, which I thought was okay, but definitely had potential to be better that it never really tapped into three stars. Uh, and then also, Michael, uh, as I was listening to your, the True Meets Media podcast, uh, talking about Andre Rublev, um, I saw that movie, I was doing a cursory search and saw that movie on YouTube, I think. If you look, there's like a three-hour version of it. I think. Is that the length of the movie? So if that's it, people can maybe find Andre Rublev on uh, YouTube, if that's how you pronounce it, if you were looking for an alternate source. Uh, the last movie I would recommend, I didn't watch it in quarantine, but I watched it uh, toward the end of 2019, with my wife, and we both loved it. It's a foreign film uh, called Never Look Away, and it was up for Best uh, International Film last year at the Oscars, and it has a lot to say. It's a very long movie, and it's a really big exploration into the meaning of art and life and beauty and truth and those kind of really big meta themes, and it takes a while to explore all those so if you've got time uh i can't i think you can find never look away at many video outlets digitally uh, so it shouldn't be too hard to pick up but if you've got the time and the inclination i'd recommend uh taking a look at never look away and letting me know what you think what were your thoughts on the film happy watching awesome chris i uh, i really man mission mission impossible fallout is one of my one of my favorite ones of the series, I think. I think it drags a little bit at the end, but that's my main issue with it. Uh, I would love to get in a conversation sometime about the Mission Impossible fr franchise. I know uh, Seth and Carl and I did a little bit uh, on one of our deep dive episodes. And um, I've always been a fan of the original Mission Impossible just because I feel like it's more spycraft than it is um, action movie. And, uh, really like that's the direction Tom Cruise is taking it in more and more. Uh, it feels like, um, Ethan Hunt is a little more James Bond, especially with the, um, with the current, well, or with Daniel Craig as James Bond, they're just very similar in a lot of ways. And, uh, the movies end up feeling very similar. So I'm actually a little bit more fan of the, the ones that are not like that. Uh, but, I really appreciated the the especially the stage presence of like uh is it yeah Henry Cavill. Um I thought he made a really great kind of, you know, I I know he's not the main villain but he is uh one of the um like and I guess he's he's like the second in command antagonist. He's a bit of the Darth Vader to uh the Emperor kind of idea and I really liked him. Um Sahara, I haven't seen that since man since it came out in theaters. Uh, I remember liking it and thinking it was really funny, but I, it doesn't surprise me that it doesn't hold up well. Uh, similarly, I think my movie tastes at the time were rather undeveloped, and 
uh, just the humor of it uh, was enough to kind of get me through the movie and really enjoy it. But I bet today I would not enjoy it nearly as much, kind of like you did. Uh, great tip on uh, finding Andre Rublev on YouTube. Also, you can find it on Canopy. Uh, Canopy is a service that uh, if you have a library card, you can sign up for and uh, just there's lots of uh, digital rentals that are available. It's a pretty good way to find Criterion Collection movies because Criterion Collection oftentimes uh, libraries will pick things like that up. So uh, that's another good way to stream it. Uh, if you have a library card, uh, you might run into some snags. I know I have. I've still not been able to sign up for Canopy because something is weird with my library card number. I mean, I like literally signed up for it so that I could sign up for Canopy. And this is maybe like two weeks before the the quarantine went into place. And like I tried setting it up and it's like, you don't have the right library card number. And it's like, it's on the card. And they're like, yeah, it's not registered with your library. And I'm like, then why did they give it to me? <laughs> so, and of course, it's very difficult to get things like that that are very small potatoes in this world right now uh, sorted out at the time. So I'm without Canopy, but that doesn't mean that you can't try it out and uh, get a chance to see Andre Rublev uh, for a lot cheaper than buying the Criterion Collection edition for $60. So I know that's that's a big ask for most people. All right, I'm going to head right into... Uh, a call from my dad, James McDonald. I don't remember if he actually introduces himself as anything other than my father. So I wanted to make sure I put his name out there, but uh, it kind of, we're going to get a little bit of a deep dive into uh, a movie that he watched, Godspell, a movie that I watched when I was a kid. I uh, don't remember super well, but uh, he gives a lot of really great historical context to that movie and uh, why he found it interesting and moving. Uh, so yeah, you're up, Dad. Hi, this is Mike McDonald's dad. Um, I was talking with him this week, and uh, he later on left a podcast talking about how he really wants people to start calling into the show. And well, that's what I'm doing here. Um, and I want to talk about a film that goes way back for me. Um, it's Godspell, the 1973 version. Um, apparently, there was one a couple of years after that that never really did that well. This is the one that uh, most of you might be familiar with. Um, but I have a feeling that uh, Godspell is a film that would be mostly understood by modern audiences. I'm 60 years old, and this movie came out when I was in, I think, eighth grade, maybe ninth. Um, however, I did not see it until after I was out of high school. Um, a lot of what you see in here is, by today's standards at least, it's uh, decidedly corny um, and horribly dated. It, it really is. Um, however, for me, that's part of the charm of it because it takes me back to my youth. Um, Godspell is a musical. It's the story of Jesus and his ministry up to his death and resurrection, although they don't really depict his resurrection. Um, so far, it sounds like a typical Jesus film, but it differs in most of the others in that it was done on a very minuscule budget. Oh, in the fact that it's a musical. Um, but it, it obviously was done on a very, very small budget. It stars actors who were all relatively unknowns at the time, 
but it portrays Jesus and the apostles in a very early in a very early 1970s type environment, complete with a bright clothing and art, flowers, big hair, painted faces, and flower power, and uh, all those tropes that uh, so many of them originated during this time. Um, so for me, the importance of Godspell is not so much in the gospel story, because uh, even though I am and have been a lifelong Christian, um, personally, I think the gospel story in this film is a little muddy. It is disjointed. The parables presented here are put together very haphazardly. But what it lacks in biblical accuracy, it way the more makes up for uh, what Jesus' message was in loving God and your neighbor um, and how relevant that was to a 1970s audience. That may be harder for younger people to do uh, that is relating to a 1970s audience. And by younger, I mean age 45 and even 50 and under. Um, if you weren't alive during that time, the historical context of this film can be lost, even if you know the facts. Knowing the facts and going through the times are not the same thing. Um, I'm going to give you just a quick historical rundown to understand where this film is coming from. Uh, you have to kind of back up a few years, and it really all comes down to the Vietnam War. Uh, things going on in Vietnam are what really launched the change in all of the musical styles of the 1960s. At the beginning of the 60s, we had It's Now or Never by Elvis Presley, but by the end of the 60s, we'd gone through a roller coaster ride that changed society and popular music. Uh, and make no mistake, the two were the same. You could not separate youthful sociological thought and politics from their music. In the 1960s, uh, people rebelled against the war. Young people started to rethink everything. Uh, free love, drugs, psychedelics, they all became more popular and prominent. Uh, the Beatles came onto the stage, and later John Lennon especially became more involved in Eastern religions, especially his relationship with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Their musical style started to take on more of an Eastern flair, which changed the whole psychedelic look of the early 70s. And just to show how influential the Beatles uh, were, you know, the monkeys followed. And I remember True Myth Media reviewed their movie Head not too long ago. And it's quite a psychedelic romp. Uh, but TV shows began to change, too. And, uh, uh, you know, I won't go into any details on those, but kind of the same, along the same lines. But music began, began to take on less of a love song type style, you know, date songs for the prom. Although that never really went away, it started to evolve into a more social justice causes and especially anti-war and anti-establishment, which justified the war. Um, artists like Bob Dylan, Carole King, and jo Joni Mitchell came on the stage. Uh, and during this time, things started to change even within the church. As secular audiences changed, uh, church audiences began to change too. And this kind of led to what later would be known as the Jesus Movement, 
between the Cold War, the Vietnam War, and all the social upheaval from the war riots and the race riots of the 60s and early 70s, people started to get kind of a gloom and doom attitude. Um, the Jesus movement started in 1971, but it really started to take off around 72 and 73, and which is the year that this movie came out. And what really characterized it was starting to look at Jesus as more like a guru or a cult leader. Um, and that's the environment that sponsored the making of this movie and actually the stage play, which actually predated this film by a couple of years. Godspell stars mostly just two recognizable faces to most audiences today, number one of which is Jesus himself, who was played by Victor Garber who at the time was completely unknown. Today, he's probably best known for his role in Legends of Tomorrow, uh, his work in Titanic, and a few years earlier on the TV show Alias. Also starring is Lynn Thigpen, who may be remembered by people my son's age as the chief in Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Uh, there's also one black man named uh, Merrill Jackson, and I just want to point out this is not one of the Jackson clan, as in the Jackson 5. And I only point that out because for years after this film, uh, people would uh, be talking about how one of the Jacksons was in Godspell. But it's not. It's somebody else completely. Uh, it takes place in New York City, starting out with John the Baptist crossing the Brooklyn Bridge over the East River from Brooklyn to Manhattan like he's coming out of the desert across the River Jordan. And it's fitting that you chose New York because it's one of a handful of locations in the U.S. that at least during the time was thought of as a sin city. But especially poignant to people of today are the shots of the still unfinished World Trade Center in the background. And one of the songs even was... Uh, in the film is portrayed or is being performed while dancing on its roof. Uh, the film is definitely an anti-establishment film and uh, so much in keeping with the mood and the emotions of the people of the 70s. So it may look sappy to modern people, but this is the way it was in people, places like Southern California. And if they, if they, I mentioned the music is inseparable from uh, the social aspects of the time. And that's why I always think it was brilliant to make it into a musical. And the, the music, for the most part, still holds up. Um, you can look them up on Spotify. The whole soundtrack is there. Um, several of the songs are still sung in some churches today, although many of the younger people probably think of it as the kinds of songs that only the old hippie priests and nuns sing. Uh, the song All Good Things was sung at my wedding by my wife's sister, and that's almost 40 years ago now. Uh, Day by Day is probably the one that would be most familiar to a lot of people, even if you don't know where it came from. And the song By My Side is an emotional song that can actually provoke a tear as the apostles are telling Jesus that they would gladly die for him. Um, but, well, watch the film. Uh, I didn't intend this to be an exhaustive review, and I've droned on for quite a while, so I think I'm going to end it here.
but I think it's worthwhile looking for this film and watching it yourself. But that's why I wanted to present a historical context so you won't think of it as just a corny-looking film. Uh, I found it for free viewing just a couple of days ago, and I verified today that it is still free. Um, this is May the 2nd, 2020. Um, you can get it at Pluto TV and go to their on-demand section, and it's in there. Um, so with that, I think I'm going to let it go. Bye. Yeah, I'm actually going to have to put this one on my watch list. Uh, I haven't seen Godspell since I was a kid uh, around the same time. I think my dad showed me Crossing the Switchblade, which I've actually seen a couple times and I, I think is all right. Um, there is a whole era of like these gospel movies that came out in like the sixties and early seventies that, um, that are fairly interesting to me. So, uh, this is definitely one that I need to rewatch. And, uh, I, if you can't tell, like, this is one of the reasons that I, I just really appreciate my dad, like the, the level of detail that he would go into about a movie. And, um, I, I, I think that has a lot to do with why I'm the kind of movie watcher that I am is uh, seeing somebody who uh, watches a movie and like doesn't just like turn their brain off, but actually engages with it and uh, explores more about uh, some of the ideas that are in the movie or how the movie was made and stuff like that. So um, I think you can see where I get a little bit of my love and uh, obsession with film when you listen to my dad. All right. Well, next up, we've got Liz. Liz Merriman is a friend of mine from film school days. Uh, just a wonderfully effervescent, hardworking, fantastic person that I absolutely adore. And uh, Liz, why don't you tell us what you've been watching? Elizabeth Merriman. I met Michael at film school. I went to school with Seth. Um, I have been watching some really odd things lately. Um, mostly all around motherhood, which fitting because I'm, I'm going to be a mom. I am pregnant. Um, so I've watched, you know, crazy things like Three Men and a Baby, um, and, you know, Baby Boom, uh, with Diane Keaton. Um, just some like fun nostalgic things. But then I've really dived deeper into like, you know, Away We Go with John Krasinski and Maya Rudolph. And I just love it, um, because of the overall theme of family is what you make of it, you know. Um, you really can defy odds, and home is where you make it, families of what you make it, and it's just awesome. Um, plus, soundtrack is fantastic, and Maggie Gyllenhaal and Allison Janney are just awesome, and it's fun to see them play those type of characters that they play. <clears throat> I also then um, have watched Waitress, which is a great independent film about a waitress who is pregnant and trying to find herself. Um, and, you know, then I, for the first time, I watched Tully with Charlize Theron, um, one of the best performances I've ever seen of her. And I really love that the films that I really concentrate on, you know, Waitress, Away We Go, Tully, is about personal growth um, while pregnant. It's not about the grossness or weird things that happen with pregnancy, like you'll see with comedies like with Knocked Up or, you know, what to expect when she's expecting, and they try to be heartfelt, and they aren't. Um, and then I wrapped it up with Joy Luck Club, which you need to watch Joy Luck Club. It's such a great cultural 
uh, look into the lives of mothers and daughters in um, Asian culture, and it's just really, really great to show, again, personal growth between mother and their child. Um, and then, of course, just so nothing's too heavy, I watched Boss Baby, which don't knock it, Oscar-nominated, you need to watch it. Boss Baby is awesome. All right. I hope this worked, guys. Have a good day. All right. Well, I'm not going to say that I'm going to go out and watch Boss Baby, uh, but I I am – I've totally has been on my list for a long time, Liz. Uh, I don't know why I keep resisting picking it up, maybe because it seems like it's so available that it almost – uh, like, like I'll see something pop up on Amazon prime or whatever. And I'll be like, Oh, I should watch that instead because Tully will always probably be there. Um, I know that's not actually the case, but, uh, maybe I should bump that one up on my list here and maybe in the next week or two. Um, cause I really like, I, I really liked young adult, um, by the same director and, uh, and the same actress. So seeing another kind of take on that, uh, but from the perspective of somebody who is a mother and uh, I've been finding I enjoy like family dramas and smaller stories like that a lot more lately. And I know that this one has a really good kind of uh, take on it. And I know Seth really liked it a lot. So I think I am going to probably either check that one out or Joy Luck Club this week, um, depending on which one I can find easier. Uh, actually, if you are looking for more like um, interesting, like family dramas and things like that. I've been watching a lot more of, uh, Ozu, the Japanese director. I think he actually might be my favorite Japanese director at this point. Cause he's actually surpassed Kur Kurosawa for me as, as far as who I want to check out, uh, on a, you know, whenever, like if, if I'm on Criterion channel looking for something to watch and something pops up on, from Ozu, I'm way more likely to click on that than an, a Kurosawa movie. So I would recommend uh, something like Good Morning uh, by Ozu, which is really good. Uh, it's not about like uh, little, little kids, like like babies, uh, it, but it's got a great storyline with two young children. Um, they look like they're probably you know, one of them is maybe like four or five and the other one is like eight or nine, maybe a little older. But uh, I really liked uh, this one, particularly because you get that kid's perspective on like how their parents rules and the way that like adult society works as opposed to kid society. Um, but it's very peaceful and calm. Uh, great for like this kind of a, like if you're stressed out or whatever, uh, that's one of the reasons I really like Ozu is because um, while his movies do demand your attention, um, because they move a little slower or whatever, it's, it, it's a little more like sitting next to a stream that is quietly drifting along as opposed to riding the rapids. Um, as long as you go into it with that attitude, I think you'll really enjoy that sort of thing. Uh, all right. And then I think last up today is going to be Josh Cortade. Uh, he's been on the show before. Uh, he's my former teacher of uh, directorial arts at Compass College of Cinematic Arts. Uh, and as you would expect from a teacher, it's a little bit longer of a message. So brace yourself. But uh, lots of really great Con lots of really great movies that he's watching these days and uh a little bit of a blast from the past as you go as you go down and remember your first time checking out some of these movies as he gets into them so with that take it away josh 
Hey, this is Joshua Cortade, and Michael asked me to talk about the movies I've been watching lately, so that is what I'm going to do. Um, during this pandemic stay-at-home situation, I've been... Uh, well, my, my hope was to revisit a whole bunch of great art films and watch a bunch of stuff on the Criterion channel and all that, but the world is so depressing that I've, I've needed to uh, seek refuge in something a little bit more uh, fun and safe, I guess. Uh, so, um, I have been watching a ton of 80s movies, mostly genre stuff. Uh, a couple of reasons. One, just because it's, it's very comforting and it makes me laugh and it's, a lot of it's kind of light and, uh, it distracts me from the horrors going on in the world right now. Um, the other reason is that I'm actually working on a pretty major, uh, movie project. It'll be my biggest film, uh, that I've made when I actually get it produced, uh, that I've been developing for about two years, and uh, I'm hoping to shoot it uh, in the summer of 2021, uh, if all goes according to plan. But uh, it's um, a, a, a kind of a futuristic sci-fi movie, but as if it was being made in the 80s, so kind of a retro future. Think like Back to the Future Part 2 or Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, I've been watching a lot of 80, 80s movies, partly just to enjoy some of the silliness and the escapism, but also uh, as research. Uh, and so, of course, I would love any recommendations for anything I've missed uh, as far as genre stuff, especially less than obvious genre stuff. I mean, you know, I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark recently, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, but, you know, I'm looking for stuff that's a little bit smaller scale than that. Um, one of the movies that I, I have revisited recently, which I revisit frequently, is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, uh, which came out in uh, 89. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's one of those movies that on the surface seems a little silly, a little, a little childish, kind of just, you know, goofy. But I actually, I actually would make the argument that it's a pretty smart comedy when you really look at what they're doing. Yeah, it's about a couple of morons, um, but the way that uh, the writers, uh, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, have crafted the, the, the bizarre internal logic of this world, uh, there's, there's a lot of really interesting uh, history jokes in the movie that if you don't know about the figures that they're, they're talking about that these guys are revisiting as they time travel, um, you missed some of the, some of the best jokes uh, in the movie, uh, if you're, if you're not aware of some of those things. And it's, it's just, I think what I love about Bill and Ted, I mean, it's, it's a teen comedy from the eighties that's not really raunchy and isn't about stoners. And it's, it's great. I mean, I grew up on it. I watched it when I was a kid and, you know, some of the more adult jokes went way over my head, you know, at that time. But, um, you know, looking at it as an adult, I still really love the film. And I think what really resonates with me now is just, the the movie's core philosophy which is be excellent to each other and you know it sounds kind of funny when you put it in the you know in that that terminology be excellent to each other but i i do really i think that's a, a really valid philosophy and i think that for our world today it's uh it's great words to to consider you know that we should treat each other well um you know there are certainly a lot of viewpoints on how you know state and federal governments are handling uh, the stay-at-home issues and the pandemic and all that stuff. And I think, to me, what it always comes down to is that idea of be excellent to each other, which is, I think, also a, a very um, uplifting spiritual idea, too. And it's very much in keeping with uh, the teachings of many major religions, like Christianity, uh, you know, to, to treat other people well, treat other people with respect and with love. And that's something I've always really, really admired about uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. For all of its silliness, 
at the end of the day, it has a, a really nice message. It's about friendship, and it's about being good to other people. Um, and something I really admire about that that first one uh, in particular is that there's no villain in the movie. There's no there's no bad guy really. I mean, the the biggest antagonist in the film is probably Ted's dad, who you know is just a strict disciplinarian, but he's not a villain. You know, in the sequel, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, which is really weird, um, and it's grown on me a lot in recent years, but I still don't think it's as good as the first one. But that one, you know, they actually do have a villain in the film. But there's something charming about that first movie that that just is. Um, it's just great. I don't know. I love it. I can watch it over and over again and I never get tired of it. I mean, is it a great art film? No, of course not. But not every movie needs to be, you know, I can enjoy my fast food and I can enjoy my filet mignon. Um, <laughs> other movies I've been watching lately from that era. Uh, I just watched, uh, the wizard recently, which I had not seen before, uh, with young Fred Savage and Christian Slater. And it's about, you know, this kid who runs away from home, uh, to take his little brother, who I, I think has autism, maybe? It's not really clear. But he's he's in some sort of shock after losing, you know, his twin sister. And he's actually this, like, you know, Nintendo prodigy. Uh, and so Fred Savage takes his little brother uh, to this Nintendo tournament in, um, I think, Los Angeles? Uh, and meanwhile, their parents are searching for them, and the older brother, played by Christian Slater, and they team up with this, you know, independent, uh, smart, strong-willed... Uh, girl who becomes friends with them uh and the movie is it's cute it's got a little sentimental and a little silly and um uh it certainly at times feels like it's a big commercial for nintendo i mean they put a lot of attention on the power glove and the big reveal of super mario brothers 3 which is still probably my favorite video game uh, of all time um i don't play a lot of new stuff so you know i'll cop to that right now but i do love mario 3 um but you know it was it was fine it wasn't the movie didn't blow me away but it was it was fun in a nostalgic sort of way um, I watched The Last Unicorn for the first time, which I know a lot of people who really love that movie, uh, and I liked it. I didn't love it. I feel like it's one that if I had grown up watching, I would probably think it's amazing. Uh, I can see why people love it, though. Like, the animation is really interesting. The backgrounds are really gorgeous. Um, I love that early 80s hand-drawn kind of look. Uh, it's also very not Disney, which makes it interesting. It's it's actually super dark and brutal at times, especially for a kid's movie. And it's got a great cast. Jeff Bridges and Mia Farrow and um, Alan Arkin, Christopher Lee, Angela Lansbury. Just terrific, terrific group of actors uh, performing on that film. Um, and then weirdly incongruous music by the band America, uh, you know, who did Horse With No Name. Um, it's good music, but it really seems out of place in this animated fantasy movie. Um, but it was, it was cool. I liked it. I liked it. Um, I also recently watched Valley Girl from 1983, which was Nicolas Cage's, uh, one of his first starring roles. And uh, it's about this young woman. I think the actress's name was Deborah Foreman. Um, but this young woman who, you know, she's a Valley Girl in the early 80s, and she's got all of her friends, and they're into trendy stuff, and, you know, they definitely come from um, uh, a place of white privilege. Um, and, you know, they, they use uh, phrases like, you know, trippendicular and, um, you know, radical and bodacious and all that great stuff. Um, and anyway, she meets this kind of punk rocker from Hollywood played by, by, uh, Nicolas Cage and they fall in love and it's sort of this star-crossed lovers thing. And, um, I, I actually was charmed by the movie. You know, I, I, I was reading some, some user reviews on Letterboxd and, uh, IMDb and I was seeing a lot of people like really going, oh, I don't believe Nicolas Cage is, you know, a punk rock kid from Hollywood. It just, I don't buy that. And I kept wondering as I read those, those reviews, like, are they really... 
not buying the performance or are they not buying it because Nicolas Cage now has a ton of baggage when you watch him today? Uh, I feel like, you know, if I hadn't seen other Nicolas Cage movies, you know, maybe it would be a different perspective on it. But I don't know. I enjoyed his performance and I thought it was it was a fun movie. And there's a remake uh, coming out, I think, on on digital sometime in the next week or two. Uh, that's a full on musical with a bunch of 80s songs, uh, you know, kind of a jukebox musical sort of idea, uh, a retelling of that story. Uh, with some cameos from the original actors. And, and I, I felt like the ending of the original movie was uh, missed a couple of story beats to really tie up some stuff at the end. But I still, I don't know, I thought the movie was charming and it had a really great um, falling in love montage set to uh, I Melt With You by Simple Minds, which is just, you know, I don't know, kind of a quintessential 80s song. I think this was the movie that made that song really popular. Um, but I don't know, I, I liked Valley Girl. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, also, let's see. Oh, as far as the action movies of the 80s, I just uh, recently rewatched Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Of course, the 80s, you know, was certainly a very macho, testosterone-driven decade. Uh, a lot of, you know, big, hulking, muscular dudes like Stallone and Schwarzenegger. This was the era where we get, like, Chuck Norris and uh, um, Jean-Claude Van Damme coming to, to prominence. And, uh, you know, these, like, muscle-bound dudes um, blowing stuff up. And Commando... <laughs> Commando was just bonkers. Uh, one of the writers on it, Stephen D'Souza, also worked on Die Hard and I think The Fugitive later on. Uh, so he must have just been one of the go-to action writers of that era. But uh, Commando is just so bonkers. It's, uh, I mean, it's kind of quintessential Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, he's this former military secret service Green Beret or something. Now, he's not a Green Beret because he actually makes a crack about Green Berets at one point. So I'm not sure exactly what kind of commando he is. But anyway, he's been living off the grid, retired, hanging out with his, his daughter, uh, young Alyssa Milano. And, uh, you know, these bad guys show up and they kidnap her and try to kill him. And anyway, eventually they, they capture him and they're like blackmailing him to uh, go rescue uh, or to go assassinate this, this um South American dictator that uh, uh, he had helped install after overthrowing uh, another guy, uh, played by Dan Hedaya, of all people. Uh, and anyway, now they want to overthrow that guy so that they can put the original guy back in place. So they're blackmailing Schwarzenegger into taking out the guy that he helped put in power and uh, put back the guy that he helped overthrow, or else they're going to kill his daughter. So he goes on basically a one-man rampage with a little bit of help from uh, Radon Chong, who... Um, has an interesting character arc. She goes from kind of being this helpless damsel in distress, panicking to like, you know, getting in on some of the action, blowing stuff up with rocket launchers a little bit. Um, so it's kind of, it's interesting, but, but by the end of the movie, like the third act of this movie is crazy. Schwarzenegger just takes out like a million guys on his own. And, uh, it's just bonkers eighties action. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's kind of stupid, but it's, it's pretty entertaining. So, uh, that's another one that I've watched recently. Uh, see oh i i watched uh beverly hills cop a few weeks ago which i love i'm a huge fan of that movie i think eddie murphy is just at the top of his game uh in a movie that was actually originally written for sylvester stallone uh and then for whatever reason uh eddie murphy ended up doing the film and i just i love it i, th I think the story is really fun there's great action scenes in it uh it was uh, directed by martin brest who did another one of my favorite 80s movies midnight run with uh, robert de niro and charles groden uh and yafet koto uh, but yeah, Eddie Murphy just really shines in Beverly Hills Cop. And the story, you know, I was watching it, I was thinking about how it's, it's a decent story, but what really makes the movie work is Murphy. And then, of course, the famous theme song, uh, Axel F., which is 
really iconic and, and wonderful. But uh, yeah, I just I, it's it's just a it's a solid action flick with really great comedy in it and Eddie's personality on display. Um, also revisited Pee Wee's Big Adventure <laughs> recently, which is Tim Burton's first feature film as a director. Uh, and, um, I think Paul Rubens had seen some of his animation or some of his short films or something and decided to work with him, uh, to, to bring him on board to do the movie that, that Paul Rubens, you know, had written for himself as Pee Wee Herman with, um, uh, oh, I just blanked on his name. Uh, dang it. I can't remember. Anyway, there was a, a, a Phil Hartman, Phil Hartman co-wrote the movie and also has a small cameo in the movie too. Um, but Pee Wee's Big Adventure is just such a delightfully loony movie with this sort of, they, they play off of the, the Pee Wee Herman persona that Paul Rubens had done in his stage show. Um, and then also, uh, blending in some of the weird kind of macabre German expressionist surrealist elements that Tim Burton would become known for. Uh, and this really great score by Danny Elfman, uh, who at that time was still kind of in the midst of his Oingo Boingo days, you know, uh, with that band. Uh, and, uh, was, you know, the first movie that he did with Tim Burton. It was Tim Burton's first feature. And, and, uh, so yeah, Danny Elfman and Tim Burton became, uh, a great duo as far as director and composer. Uh, but yeah, Pee-wee's Big Adventure is just so funny and it's so surreal and odd and it skewers so many conventions of the traditional Hollywood narrative. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a really great, almost kind of anti-plot story where they, they just kind of turn the plot conventions a little bit sideways and it tells a story, but it's such an odd story that subverts typical expectations at, at almost every turn. Uh, and there's some really dark humor in it that I don't think I appreciated when I was a kid watching it that I definitely uh, really enjoy now. Uh, and some wonderful cameos in it, too, like Jan Hooks and, um, uh, of course, you know, I mentioned Phil Hartman already. Uh, and then uh, some of the, the actors who would later go on to be in Pee-wee's Playhouse, uh, the TV series that, that Pee-wee Herman did. But, yeah, just really ah, just an entertaining movie. I love Pee-wee's, uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's just so much fun. Uh, the other thing I, I did recently, I mean, there are tons of 80s movies. I've been watching lots of them, but the other, the other kind of movie marathons I've been doing, I've been watching all the James Bond movies again, um, but I'm, I'm going to hold off on getting too deep into that, uh, cause I really want to sit down with Michael and Seth and, and talk about the Bond franchise in person at some point. Uh, the other marathon I did a few, uh, a few weeks ago, I spent a Saturday just binging all of Jim Henson's, um, well, most of Jim Henson's feature films. So I watched the original Muppet trilogy, so the Muppet movie, The Great Muppet Caper, Muppet State Manhattan, uh, and then I watched uh, The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. And uh, I just, man, Jim Henson's one of the reasons I got interested in filmmaking in the first place. You know, I was always a huge Muppets fan when I was a kid. Still am a huge Muppets fan now. yeah, I just, I love it. I love that stuff. And it was interesting watching the the three original Muppet movies from the late 70s and early 80s. I was really noticing something, uh, a pattern that I never noticed before. All three of those movies contain uh, a sequence where Miss Piggy has like a fantasy or dream sequence uh, musical number. So in the Muppet movie, she's got the never before, never again scene when she first lays eyes on Kermit. And she goes into this like really romantic, melodramatic kind of fantasy with this epic song. And then in um, uh, the Great Muppet Caper, it's during the the fashion show when she has like that fantasy about the water ballet and Kermit and Charles Grodin are kind of serenading her and Grodin is obviously dubbed, which they make a, a very meta joke about. 
Uh, and then in the Muppet State Manhattan, uh, that's when Kermit and Piggy are riding in the, the carriage and she has the kind of the daydream that introduced the idea of Muppet Babies, which would then later become an animated uh, series shortly after that movie was released. Uh, but in the movie, it was done with puppetry like everything else with the Muppets. But anyway, I just thought that was interesting that Miss Piggy, you know, was constantly having these fantasy musical numbers. Um, but something I really appreciate about those movies, I mean, aside from the fact that I just think they're hilarious and have a lot of heart, is the just the subversive nature of the Muppets and how Jim Henson and his team, Frank Oz and Jerry Nelson and Richard Hunt, Dave Goals, Steve Whitmire, uh, his writer Jerry Jewell, who worked on uh, all of those things, um, that, that whole team, they just really liked to mess with uh, normal storytelling and they would make all these meta jokes with the characters acknowledging that they're in a movie and they, they're aware of the movie. I mean, Great Muppet Caper opens with an amazing sequence where Kermit and Fozzie and Gonzo are in a hot air balloon commenting on the opening credits. And Fozzie actually at one point asks if anybody actually reads all the names and Kermit says, sure, they all have families. And it makes me laugh every time. And I just, I think it's, it's wonderfully weird. And, um, there's just so many great jokes and, and great moments. And then of course, you know, his fantasy stuff, Henson's uh, darker uh, fantasy movies like The Dark Crystal. Uh, I, you know, when I was younger, I wasn't really into that movie as much. But as I've gotten older, I really like The Dark Crystal. Um, I think the world building is fascinating. The puppetry is absolutely extraordinary in that movie. I mean, the story is a pretty straightforward hero's journey story uh, with some interesting twists with like the relationship with the mystics and the Skeksis and some of that stuff. Um, but I really, I just really like that movie. I really enjoy watching it and looking at it. It's got a cool score uh, and it just looks really good. And it's interesting. I think the the recent Netflix series uh, came out last year. The Dark Crystal: Age of Resistance is a pretty amazing uh, modern story in that world where they they do. It's a prequel to the movie, and it's it's really great. But uh, anyway, then of course, following up Dark Crystal, I watched Labyrinth, which is just fun. It's just kind of silly fun. I I don't. I, I and when I was younger, I preferred it to Dark Crystal. I some of the juvenile humor kind of loses me now uh like the bog of eternal stench i kind of i kind of tune out a little bit during those scenes but bowie is fascinating as the goblin king and young jennifer Connolly was uh she's really um compelling as the the lead character and again lots of incredible puppetry and just a fascinating world that henson built with you know george lucas executive producing and then uh terry jones uh from monty python who just recently died uh just i think late last year um uh, he wrote uh, the script with, you know, based on Jim Henson's uh, story and uh, just a really wonderful collaboration. So that was, that was a ton of fun to watch all those Jim Henson movies in one day, uh, four of which were also 80s movies <laughs> out of the five. Um, so there's that. But uh, yeah, that's mostly what I've been watching. I don't know. There's been some other stuff. I, I've been watching a little bit of Bergman, Will Tarkovsky lately. Um, uh, oh, I rewatched uh, Peter Bogdanovich's uh, What's Up Doc on Criterion Channel uh, last month, which I hadn't seen in quite a while, and I enjoyed that tremendously. So much fun. A uh, great sort of 70s version of a like 30s or 40s screwball comedy with um, Barbara Streisand. Uh, just really, just really, uh, um, what's the word I want to use here? Magnetic in her performance as a, a real nut. And then... Um, uh, also, um, oh gosh, I, I'm doing terrible with names today. Uh, Ryan O'Neill as kind of the, uh, the sort of absent-minded, you know, genius character who's 
you know, very befunneled through the whole thing, but is, you know, it's just, ah, really just a fun movie, just a really fun movie from the, from the seventies. And, uh, you can tell Bogdanovich really, really loved that, that genre and that style. And you didn't really see a lot of screwball comedies in the seventies. There was a lot of like really zany stuff coming from like Mel Brooks and like some of Woody Allen's early stuff, but you didn't see like full on like screwball romances, like the kind of stuff you used to see with like Cary Grant, and Catherine Hepburn, like bringing up baby back in, you know, the, the golden days of Hollywood. Uh, so it's, it's neat to see what, what Bogdanovich uh, did with that genre. Um, I probably talked long enough. The only other one that I'll, I'll mention that I've watched recently was uh, on my birthday. I watched Casablanca, which is my all-time favorite movie, and I, I really, really had a wonderful time watching it on my birthday. There's just every time I watch it, there's just some something else to enjoy, and I've seen it many, many times. And I just think the performances, I think the way that Michael Curtiz directed the film, the cinematography, the the music, uh, all, it's just the writing, the script is just such an extraordinary script. Uh, and it really goes to show that even during the kind of factory-like Hollywood studio system of that era, you could still find these really magnificent movies that were incredibly well-made and incredibly compelling. And Casablanca just has everything. It's funny and witty. It's romantic. It's suspenseful. It's got great music. It's got bad guy Nazis. And, um, you know, uh, bad guy Nazis, that's the way to do Nazis. Uh, and I think we need reminders of how bad Nazis are sometimes these days. But anyway, because <laughs> not everyone seems to remember that Nazis are the bad guys. Um, anyway, I love Casablanca, and I just think it's a, a marvelous movie. So um, that's probably that's probably enough for, for me for now. So, um, uh, Michael, if you need anything else, let me know. But that's, that's probably plenty. <laughs> All right. Uh, I love movies. Okay, bye. Josh, I love movies too. <laughs> uh I, I know you're like me you could talk all day about these things uh and this is gonna shock you i've never seen bill and ted's excellent adventure i know it's crazy that i haven't but there's a lot of holes in uh kind of my movie watching especially in my younger years and that i've just never gone back and picked up i i've been dubious of whether i would enjoy it or not just because it is kind of a teen comedy i've not heard before though and i really appreciate that you pointed this out that it's not super raunchy or drug heavy because that does put it in kind of a different category than i think i was putting it in i guess i probably would have assumed from a lot of the memes and the like the whoa and all that kind of stuff that uh it, it would be a little more raunchy or drug heavy so uh that that was interesting to hear i may have to check that one out uh i know it's like one of those almost sacrosanct movies that people have to watch. But uh, for some reason, it's always kind of just slipped past me. So uh, I'll, I'll put that on my list. Uh, again, I'll say if you're struggling to find things that uh, are kind of art house films that are not depressing, like on Criterion Channel or whatever, because I know I run into that. Like so many, like half the movies on there are about a Holocaust or about like uh, somebody being brutally murdered or a death or something like that. Like art house films are about weighty subjects usually, and that means they're pretty heavy. But uh, again, I'll suggest some uh, Yasujiro Ozu. Like his movies, while being art house films and beautifully brilliant cinema, very poetic. They they bring a sense of calm and peace rather than uh, like upheaval or like this churning uh, sensation that sometimes you get with an art house film that's really about something rough um, where it just kind of like stirs up your soul and in, in in not a really 
not always a positive way, but I feel like Ozu is a great antidote to that. Uh, if you want to check him out, um, I'm sure you've seen some of his stuff. Yeah, 80s genre stuff. Man, I love listening to you talk about Muppets. Uh, I've talked about Muppets before with uh, uh, Erica Pinero, a common friend of ours, and uh, I just think the Muppets are great. <laughs> Uh, I was literally laughing just listening to you describe, uh, the great Muppet Capers musical sequence with Miss Piggy. I think, I mean, I remember watching that when I was a kid and I've always kind of sung that song in my head. Like, it's just, it's just such a ridiculous sequence It's synchronized swimming with the, with a puppet and, uh, the earnestness with which Charles Grodin, is singing um like it is obviously a humorous song but he is singing it with such passion um i really think charles groden is one of those underrated uh comedians who just does not get the recognition that he deserves for for how talented he is and i will say that joke of uh fozzy and kermit watching the credits and asking like does anybody watch these and sure they all have families i think of that every time i go see a movie that a friend of mine made <laughs> or a movie i made because i've sat in i mean i've sat in the theater watching uh do you believe with my parents and then up oh, up oh, there comes my name uh key set pa you know and it's like we really are the only ones who care that my name is on that screen so <laughs> uh i i will say i'm i'm not surprised you are not a huge fan of last unicorn um it is a strange movie in some ways. I actually – I feel like when I recommend this movie, I, I did a little bit of a disservice by not warning you a little bit about it because it's got this fantastic cast. It's got this really interesting animation style, the Rankin and Bass animation style. But the the music, like you said, feels a little incongruous. Um, I try to think of this movie almost as like an extended music video. Like – the the music sequences are there for you to think about things to think like which is a little strange in a kids movie um but like they're this is like my favorite i i one of my favorite soundtracks actually i i know most of the words to it by heart i've seen this movie so many times i literally drift off to sleep to the soundtrack all the time uh at the at, when i'm trying to like fight off my uh insomnia or something and I, uh, I would also recommend, as much as I love the movie, it it fails in a couple of points that um, the book really succeeds in. the The book is a lot more adult and like talks about some of the concepts that are brought up in the movie. Because you're right, it's pretty dark. Um, like there's all these parts about like. Um, you know, whether there can really be happy endings and what are people's roles in their stories. Um, the, I think if you read the book, which is a pretty easy read, actually, and a really fantastic read, um, it brings a lot more context to some of the conversations that happen in the movie and lends itself a little more depth. Um, this is a movie that has some of my favorite quotes of all time in it. Uh, the, the performance, especially by Christopher Lee, I love Christopher Lee's performance as King Haggard in this movie. Um, his voice, it just carries this gravitas with it that makes 
it not seem ridiculous that there would be a king out there who saw a unicorn and said, that's the only thing that makes me happy. I want all of them. Like that is kind of a ridiculous thing, but it works because of because you've got Saruman saying the words. It's great. This is actually one of the the movies that I think really primed me at a young age to be discussing uh, things like story concepts and like roles in it. It like seeing Prince Lear talk about the fact that he is a He's a hero and a hero has certain things about him that he has to do or he's not a hero. Um, and understanding that that means that he cannot simply say, oh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to marry Lady Amalthea because that's not a heroic thing for him to do. It's a selfish thing for him to do. Um, and realizing that his part in the story is not as great as the story itself. Um, and I I just really. I really identify with that, and uh, it's been a concept that I've come back to over and over and over again in the movies I watch and the stories I write and the conversations that I have with people. All right, so uh, that's going to do it for calls today. Uh, let me go through what I've been watching. I watched Killing of a Chinese Bookie, which is a Cassavetes movie. Um, I had mentioned that I watched Faces and did not really enjoy that one. I liked this a lot more. Uh, the way that the story unfolds, the incredibly realistic performances and camera work. Um, it's about a guy who runs a strip club and uh, gets into a gambling debt. And as part of the paying off the gambling debt, they ask him to kill a bookie and like things spiral and, you know, all of that kind of thing that normally happens in uh, in something like this. But it really is the raw realism that makes this movie stand out to me. Like, this is not a glamorous strip club he works at. It's got a it's got a grossness to it and a a non-performance aspect to it. It's it's very strange. Like it it really does feel like a guy who is putting together a show and he's just got these girls who are willing to do the show with him. And He's got this little kingdom, and uh, a lot of the movie is subtly about the control um, that people give or receive from other people uh, and also perceptions like who people really are as opposed to who they they are perceived to be um, because uh, we find out multiple characters from uh, the strippers to the the main performer to – uh, like our nightclub owner and the other uh, the the mob that r runs the gambling den where he gets in over his head, the characters oftentimes seem to be one thing first, and then as more information comes along and like situations uh, spin out of control, and people go to rely on them to be that kind of person that they were presenting themselves at as, and then all of a sudden they're not anymore. And it's like there's a there's a really good scene where um, there's a conflict between two guys where somebody is kind of figured out the other person is supposed to kill him. And he's saying to him, look, man, you're not a killer. Like, just, like, I know I know that you you present like you are, but you've never killed anybody. And you're not going to start with me because we're friends. And 
like the guy basically is just like man he does have me pegged <laughs> and like call somebody else <laughs> um i really appreciated that that aspect of the movie um and i'm interested to check out more cassavetes i also watched i am not a witch uh which is on the criterion channel and i really enjoyed it but i might not uh ooh. No, I do recommend this one. It's re- it's really interesting. It is sad though. Um, this is one of those Josh that you don't want to watch when you're in a gloomy mood. Um, it's about this girl who gets accused of being a witch, and then she ends up working for this kind of corrupt government official who will bring all these people who are accused of being witches. He kind of keeps them as a stable and will, you know, use them for labor, but then he'll also use them occasionally to uh, kind of get money out of people because, you know, he'll he'll just take them around to villages who want water and like basically say, oh, this is a witch and here, do your rain dance and then they'll pay him. And, um, you know, so he's scamming them and everything. Uh, so it's, it is really interesting, but it is also very, I don't know, really, really sad. I, because it's just this little girl in this horrible situation, and she's just trying to get through. She doesn't speak much, so a lot of what people assume about her is put on her by, like, their own perceptions or by this government official who's, like, explaining things. But um, in some ways, it seems like the movie is about the ease with which uh, people can abuse if uh, no one is standing up to them and uh, and saying something because uh, she's silent. And really, I think there are multiple characters in the movie that if she were to just say, hey, I'm I'm not a witch. Um, yeah, I don't know if their her situation would get better or not, because on the one hand, it's not like those people are going to be like, oh, cool. Well, like you should come move in with me then. You know, she's still got nowhere to go. I don't know. It's a movie that I just keep thinking about over and over again. So I guess that's probably why I'm recommending it. I like those movies that stick with me. Then I went on a little bit of a animation tear. Uh, I watched Fire and Ice, uh, The Last Unicorn again, because I knew you were watching it, Josh. So I wanted a refresher, even though I probably don't really need one. Um, and Lord of the Rings, the Ralph Bakshi version. Um, so that's the version that I uh, the that's the version that I watched growing uh growing up and I uh, I man I think Lord of the Rings is my favorite Ralph Bakshi movie um certainly there are things that the new movies do far better uh the Balrog is laughable in this movie uh got to remember how how ahead of like this is 20 years before um Peter Jackson is making his movies so um, the Balrog is really laughable, but there are other parts of it that I actually prefer. That's why I think it's a really, it's a, it's a easier watch cause it's shorter. Um, there are certain performances that I actually prefer or certain lines that are worded in a way that I like a little better. Um, like especially the, the scene, the, the way that Gandalf explains, uh, the history of the ring to Frodo. I really like that part even better than in the fellowship of the ring. I, even though, man, I, I love Elijah Wood and Ian McKellen together. Uh, there's just something about the portrayal of Gandalf in 
this movie where he's more mysterious, I think, than he is in The Fellowship of the Ring. In The Fellowship of the Ring, the newer ones, he's he's such a sweet old man in a lot of ways. Um, but I, like, emblazoned in my mind is the cartoon version of Gandalf stalking around Bag End going, Ash, Nas, Thrakataluk, Ash, Nas, Gimbatuk, Ash, Nas, you know, like the see, saying the, the dark words of Mordor that are supposed to be on the ring and the way that he walks around. And um, he also does this thing with his arms at the lines and in the darkness bind them that like has just set into my brain since I was a child. And like even the new Lord of the Rings movies that aren't new, they're now 20 years old also, uh, just can't conquer that for me. Uh, the last one I'm going to talk about today is the movie Woman in the Dunes. Um, this is a movie that's been on my list for a while. Uh, it is on the Criterion channel, and it is a small thriller uh, about a etymologist who is collecting bug samples on a beach. And he stays out a little too long, misses the last bus back because he's, you know, enraptured in, in his his area of interest. And one of the locals says to him, well, you know, why why don't you just stay uh, in one of our houses for the night because you want to, you know, get back to work tomorrow? Um, so he agrees to do that. Um, and he stays with this young woman and Basically, he doesn't realize it right away, but he's been he's been uh, he's been kidnapped and the the house that they're in, like there's no way to get out of this giant like sand pit that it is in. And this woman, what she does is every night because it's cooler, she basically mines sand and the the other guys that kidnapped the kidnapped her him uh like pull it up and they sell that sand and that's how she subsists um and so he is there to basically do the same thing and it's all about how he's resisting this entrapment that has happened to him um it's about the environment attacking the efforts of man uh, because the sand is just everywhere. It rots the house if they don't like constantly replace pieces or constantly careful about it. Um, it is it's all it's and also it's about this uh, how the, a lot of what gets drawn out in this movie are the ways that um, it's really a movie that is about that human struggle, the way it feels a bit like Sisyphus pushing up the boulder that is eternally going to be a task. Um, for her, that task is shoveling this sand. Um, and for him, although he doesn't realize it, that same task is the like his job back in, I think he lives in Kyoto, um, but his job is that same thing. He's never really thought about it that way. But after some time with this woman, that is how he starts to think about it. And he thinks he's so essential and that people are going to come searching for him and all these things. And it, it really isn't. So it, 
they they really don't come. So it's it ends up being about this inconsequential feeling that we have to our lives. Like it is this constant struggle that means nothing. Um, and I think I think that's why it really resonated with me. So if you're a person who likes that, who um, who likes, I don't know, it kind of reminded me in some ways of like a much slower and um, less violent uh, in your face version of misery. Um, because once again, we have this guy that is like kind of stranded out um, in the middle of nowhere by himself. And he thinks that he has found safety and in fact has found uh, danger. And I, so if, if those are the sorts of stories that really interest you or whatever, like I said, it's not nearly as violent. It's not nearly as like in your face and thrillery as that movie is. But if you want kind of like a bit of a twist on that idea, um, I think Woman in the Dunes would be really interesting to you. So that's going to do it for my rundown. Uh, I think for the setup for next week, things that I'm interested in checking out. Uh, right now, I'm looking at Joy Luck Club maybe or uh, Tully. I am definitely going to try and find Never Look Away and Bill and Ted. Uh, and then I also happen to know that Blue Velvet um, which is a movie that, like, talking with Sarah Naraki, uh, you know, months ago, uh, talking about my like for my liking of David Lynch and how somehow I missed this particular movie of his because uh, it's just the popular one. It had already been reviewed for the site and all that kind of stuff, so I just didn't watch it. And uh, but it's on streaming on Prime right now, so I'm going to check that one out. Uh, my recommendations for the week. Uh, let's see, on Netflix we've got. Ip Man, that's I-P-M-A-N. Uh, it's a great martial arts film uh, starring Donnie Yen as uh, Ip Man, who was one of the, I believe, teachers of uh, Bruce Lee. So that's kind of like his claim to fame is he invented uh, a style of martial arts called Wing Chun. And uh, the, this movie is really interesting because it has a lot of political stuff going on with China and Japan. It takes place during, I think, World War II. And of course, like most martial arts movies, uh, its quality really is determined by the quality of the martial arts. And this movie has one of my all-time favorite martial arts sequences. Uh, even if you never pick up the movie, uh, just hop on Netflix, fast forward, find the scene where he's fighting a bunch of people um, uh, in like a large open mat area. And uh, that fight sequence is so great. I, I really like it. Um, so even if you don't see the movie, check that part out. Uh, on Amazon streaming, uh, I'm going to recommend one of my absolute favorite movies. Uh, it's called Ostrov or The Island. It'll probably be The Island on Amazon Prime. Uh, this is a Russian film, and uh, I'm I'm Orthodox. I'm an Orthodox Christian, and uh, it's kind of an unusual denomination uh, faith to be a part of. And lots of people have lots of questions about it when they find out, and they they're always asking me. And um, I a lot of times don't know what to say to them. The Island is one of the most Orthodox movies I've ever seen. Um, it takes place at a, in a monastery, and uh, it's about a bunch of monks, uh, Russian Orthodox monks. So that's interesting because uh, even with some knowledge of like Roman Catholicism or whatever, a lot of the things would carry over as far as like orders go and how that monk um, 
community should operate. So even though it is very culturally different, there are some good like handholds for people that are new to it because they they say different prayers, they have different customs that it might be hard to get used to at first. Especially um, this movie is about a particular monk um, who is uh, the Orthodox call certain certain people whether they're saints or whatever. Uh, We refer to them as fools for Christ, and these are people who um, oftentimes uh, seem to the rest of the world to be insane or um, just difficult, curmudgeon-y. They do do things in ways that seem to be apparently um, outside the realm of their religion. Uh, So like in this movie— um, you know, even though he's a monk and he's supposed to be pursuing holiness, like he is constantly doing things intentionally to irritate the other monks. Um, and, but he sees, but I don't even know if he sees his role this way, but like the way that, um, kind of the Christian community has learned to look at some, look at some situations that are like this is that he, through those things is revealing other people's attachments and sins. So even though he is that way, uh, like certain members of the community consider him to be the head of the community, even over the abbot. Um, and uh, he'll he has he teaches people things through like interesting through interesting means. Um, but it's really about his soul searching and uh, and his journey towards. Um, like finding meaning and redemption for something that he did when he was younger. I think especially for people who are uh, have wondered um, why I've I've moved the way that I have religiously. I think in this movie they would find one small piece of that uh, for people who are uh, Christians and looking for more wholesome entertainment that doesn't have like a bunch of sex or swearing and things like that. This is a great movie for you. It is, um, it's a great movie, uh, uh, to kind of help spark introspection, um, to realize the way that we perceive people who are difficult in our lives and the way that God actually uses those people to grow us so um, we can actually have grace for those people and love for those people um, and re- realize that they have a true value um, that goes beyond just like they are a chore for me and therefore I earn some crown and glory someday or whatever. Like they really do contribute to my my growth, things that I'm so glad that I learned uh, from people that I know – like most people would think are foolish or silly. Um, so that that's one of the reasons that I really like this movie. Um, it's a little slow. It's got that Russian pacing. <laughs> but, you know, I love that. So my last recommendation of the day is going to be The Nice Guys. Uh, this is now streaming on HBO Go. I'm sure you can find it uh, elsewhere as well. Uh, just very funny uh noir la noir uh take i think it takes place in the 70s maybe the 80s but it's uh russell crowe and uh ryan gosling are a couple of pis who don't quite get along but are uh investigating the murder of a porn star 
So it's got a little bit of content in it. Mom and dad probably don't want to watch that one. Maybe check out The Island instead. But uh, for those of you who that doesn't bother as much, uh, I think you'll be laughing uh, all the way through this movie. Like even into the climax, like there's um, a couple of action set pieces as things uh, get larger. But um, it stays funny pretty much throughout. So uh, that's The Nice Guys on HBO Go. Well, that's going to do it for my recommendations. Uh, for next week, just a question to get things started in case you don't know where to start. You don't have to answer these questions, but uh, just some things to get your mind jogging a little bit. Uh, it seems like we, uh, like at this point in the pandemic, uh, just looking for something light, something familiar. I've ended up visiting a lot of childhood favorites. Uh, and I, I know like Josh Cortade also, I heard a lot of that, like revisiting movies from the eighties and stuff that he really likes. Uh, what childhood favorites are, because those childhood favorites, they carry this nostalgia, they carry this wonder that we never lose. Like um, I'll, while The Last Unicorn may not be a movie that everybody is going to love if they pick it up in their thirties, Seeing it as a child all the way now up into my 30s, I've never lost the magic of that movie. I've never lost the wonder that I have of it. What are what are your childhood favorites that you've never lost that wonder for, that you've never lost that sense of magic about? Um, I'd love to hear about them. Or what's your favorite Muppet movie? I mean, that was uh, like thinking about that. For me, it's The Great Muppet Caper. Uh it's it's just so ridiculous. I mean, all the Muppet movies are ridiculous, um, but it's the one that sticks the most with. It's the one that sticks in my brain the most. Like I said earlier, um, I think largely because of that Miss Piggy number that I find so hilarious. Um, but yeah, what's your favorite Muppet movie and why? Uh, next week, uh, hopefully, we'll be able to get even more people calling in. Uh, you know, especially after hearing everybody that did call in. You know, reach out to your friends. Say, hey, I'm on this podcast. You should check out. Uh, you should check it out. Uh, we'd love to hear from those people as well. In fact, for people who actually go out and like try and foster this community a little bit uh, by sharing that phone number six one six two eight seven zero two seven five or my email address, michael at truemythmedia.com, and are actually able to convince other people to listen and even call in next week, have them reference your name, have them say, hey, Virginia told me to call in, or Josh told me to call in, and whoever gets the most callers to come in and reference them on the on the show, I will send them a free movie code for either the movie Ron, which is a Kurosawa, my favorite Kurosawa film. Uh, it's a retelling of King Lear. Or uh, you can pick Us, which is the um, Jordan Peele follow-up to Get Out. Or um, if you're in for something a little more silly and weird or silly and uh, ridiculous, I've got a code for Geostorm. So uh, if you're wanting to check out one of those movies, be sure to tell your friends to call into the True Myth Media podcast. Once again, the number for you to call is 616-287-0275 or email michael at truemythmedia.com with your audio file to be included in next week's show. Make sure you get those audio files in by Thursday at noon to be included in the Friday show. Thank you once again, everybody, for calling in. This has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed hearing everybody's voices. Um, 
I know that's something that I, I referenced in my first show, how important it is for my mental health and I think for all of our mental health to uh, to be in contact with each other and make those extra efforts, especially at a time where it takes a lot of extra effort to reach out to people. It takes learning something about technology and um, you know, setting appointments and things like that. It's just a little harder these days, so uh, hopefully you will join me next week. Uh, in our efforts to keep our little film community together, watching, talking, enjoying together. And I will say farewell, friends. <laughs>